Welcome to the Tori Says Show. It is April 5th, 2021. And I'm stating that only um, to make sure that uh, we remember what the day is when we need it. So I hope my sound is coming in clear. I'm still having problems with um, my actual feeds. I am really working on it hard on Trovo Live. my gosh. So today, I want us to talk a little bit about what has happened, what is happening now, and see that they're telling us everything we need to know. Uh, it was interesting to see, I was planning to actually do this show on Tuesday, uh, but I'll do it on Monday since it's already circulating and the Tory says, chat on telegram so i was really excited to see it you know why because it means that you are the news now you're finding everything it's like you've honed in on it you're not waiting for someone to tell you you're not waiting for someone to spoon feed you actually seeing it yourself and that is incredible because that is how we self-govern as a collective and resonating on um the same frequency. It's just impeccable. Now, last night I had a troubled evening only because I was, I was working well into the evening. I woke up with the puffiest eyes and sometimes, you know, it really does work into you. And, and, and what I mean by this, I get really, really upset right? When I see things like the picture of Jill Biden, for example, that was hilarious. She's dressing like a 30 year old. Uh, You know, she's trying to be, I mean, I don't even know what she was thinking when she got dressed like that. So at first I'm laughing and I'm, ah, but then it sinks in, you know, it sinks in. It sinks in to see that she's wearing her insecurities so loud and clear. She's extremely insecure, afraid of getting old, wanting to feel filled. You know, all the money in the world, you can, you know, you can buy the nice car, the nice home. You could be the first lady, but nothing can make you feel whole if you're If you have, I don't want to say heart, but when you act inhumane, ah, and that's tight too. It's that lack of something, that lack of something where, you know, suddenly, you know, someone that used to be your average guy used to, you know, throw a ball around in the yard suddenly is using, you know, doesn't want to talk to average people or common folk. 
I've seen that in many people. I've seen it with people I work with, people I know. You know, even Jeffrey Epstein had that, right? It's at that point when you disassociate from humankind. And you don't see them as one and the same as you, but you see yourself above the others. And that's the thing. They don't have that connection to mankind anymore. They believe that they're above other people. They believe, oh, that person doesn't know. That person isn't important. That person is just a nobody. And that's what causes them these insecurities. And I actually feel bad. I mean, the video that we're going to talk about in the second half hour, I see a person I know very well. And even though they're spewing hate and lies, I feel so bad just seeing them in that defeated position, in that position of um, defense, wanting to be offense, having to sit back and be on a stream with like five people on it. Nobody cares because no one's listening. And so I thought I'd start today's um, show off with, um, uh, it was something, it was, um, Biden was whining about President Trump's new platform. And he was saying that, oh, they can't stop us. That's, that's crazy. That is really crazy. So I thought I'd started off with that. Because Lara Trump actually caught Biden complaining about that. What do you mean you, they can't stop us? I'm sorry, Joe, but you can't stop what's coming. The fear is real for them. The fear is very, very real for them. With Alex Kramer for the latest headlines right here. Hi, Carl. Yes, let's kick it off with dozens of aides to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo have been subpoenaed by the state's attorney general. Overhaul came all the way back in 1986 during the Reagan administration. Back to you. Wow, thanks, Logan. Now, I told you folks this is a full-on MAGA show, so we're about to start delivering on that right now. Our first guest is one of the most popular members of the Trump family. Now, she may be following in her famous father-in-law's footsteps into politics. I want to welcome Laura Trump to Saturday Report. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Well, I'm flattered. One of the most popular Trumps. That's a big accolade. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, you know that uh, you're my favorite among you and Eric. So, <laughs> <laughs> so all right, look, I want to I get right to this. You said uh, that you're strong, that you are constro- strongly considering a run for North Carolina Senate. So let's set the record straight. You're running, you're not running. What do you think? Well, I'm not ready to make an announcement about uh, anything just yet, Carl, but it is something that I'm still strongly considering. Um, I would love to represent the people of my home state in North Carolina, um, but it is, as you know, a very big decision. Uh, it means, you know, a lot of changes for our family. So we're sort of working things out, and uh, and I hope to have something to announce very soon. Right. Well, so we'll put you down for a definite maybe. Uh, we'll have you back when that. that <laughs> <laughs> All right. So obviously, Eric, your husband, um, You've seen firsthand what this does to a family, what it's doing. I mean, you have everybody and their brother going after the business, the way of life, even your kids. Um, how much does that weigh on your decision? 
Well, it does weigh a lot. You know, I think, uh, sadly, the Democrats are trying to do everything possible to keep good people from running for office. I mean, their goal is to harass people to a point that they say, well, gosh, it's just not worth it. Well, I would never do something uh, because they, you know, they, they tried to dissuade me from doing it. And I think that um, that should be the goal for us as Republicans. We have to fight back against this. We have to fight back against the cancel culture and the nonsense. Um, but look, you know, my family is my number one priority. So uh, it, it is a decision that we have had to discuss as a family and we will continue to do so. Yeah. So let's say you're the senator tomorrow. What is the main issue that you're driving at for the people of North Carolina if you should decide to run because you probably would be elected? Let's be honest. Well, you know, I, I would have to take my notes directly from the people in North Carolina. But gosh, I think they really want somebody in Washington, D.C. to represent the values, um, quite frankly, that Donald Trump did. They want people that care about putting America first. They want to make sure that we have jobs that are abundant in America again, that you know, we face what is going on on the southern border and we tackle it. We cannot have a broken immigration system like you currently see under the Biden administration and think that that's going to be a positive thing for America. We cannot uh, move forward in the way that we have been on our southern border. It's mm -hmm. going to destroy our country. We need strength in Washington, D.C. We need people to stand up and do what's right and put America and Americans first. Yeah, you know, one of the most genuine qualities that you have, and as well as the rest of the family, is that you are real people. You're you're not just some, you know, ideologue who speaks well, who goes on TV and has, you know, pr pr pushes this agenda. You are actually real people. You're very down to earth. You're normal folks. You relate. You can go into a bar room, a boardroom, or a bowling alley and have the same conversation with every single person. So, you know, one of the big things that President Trump has been cut off from recently was Twitter and Facebook and all these, his ability to reach the normal person who at home elected him because they're like, hey, that's that's my guy. So, you know, there's talk that he's getting onto this new social media platform, maybe something called Free Space, maybe something else. What else can you tell us about that? Well, I'll leave that up to him to make the big, big announcement. But look, I do know that there are roughly 75 million Americans and probably a lot more than that that feel like their voice does not uh, have a home anywhere. You know, they can't go on any of these social media platforms as they currently exist and, and speak freely, quite frankly. They are censored as conservatives. We know we are censored. We have all felt it. We've all seen it in different ways. And that's not right. So I think what my father-in-law wants to do ultimately is, is give people a space where you have your First Amendment right to freedom of speech. You have the ability uh, to you know, say whatever it is you want to say, and you're not going to have the fact checkers, Carl, pouncing on you every instant. You know, I thought it was ridiculous during the campaign uh, that I would post a photo of my children and I would get some sort of a bar at the bottom that said like fact checkers about COVID-19. I'm like, this is about my kids. It's yeah. crazy. We need freedom and people want that. So look, who better to provide it than President Trump? Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. Look, I, I posted something on Twitter the other day where I was quoting a CDC article. I had the screenshot of the CDC <laughs> and it's talking about COVID-19. And I was like, they were like, well, you know, fact checkers, independent fact checkers have deemed this out of context, out of context. What are you talking about? You see oh, it all the time. Okay, what's going on there? Um, super bizarre, swirling thing. Are you guys yeah. seeing it? There we so, go. Yeah. All right. It's so, crazy stuff. Yeah. So uh, you know, many Republicans, they still, myself included, we still crave Trump's input on things because, like, you know, the guy for everyone's complaints about him, the guy cared. 
He gave a darn about the American people in their home. Are they better off than they were four years ago? And it was the economy. That was his driving factor. Now, there's a lot of people out there that are going into primaries. They're going to primary some of these GOPers, these rhinos that didn't, they didn't uphold his agenda. They said they did, but they didn't. They put both feet in the, in, in the water. They just kind of dipped their toe in. And they're, he's going out and he's endorsing some of these people. Now, talk about the dynamic of a presidential endorsement between in a GOP primary, which, you know, former president rarely does anything like that. Well, as you know, uh, Donald Trump follows his own rules, and this is no different. Um, but look, I think these rhinos, as as you adequately put it, are part of the problem. They're part of a broken system uh, that really is is not working for Americans anymore. And so I think we saw how impactful over the past four years an endorsement from Donald Trump could be for so many people. Um, so look, this is something that, that he feels very strongly about. You are never going to fix things if you keep having people who call themselves Republicans, but don't vote that way, um, you know, representing the people of this country. It doesn't work. So I think what he's doing, um, it's, it's pretty bold. But again, uh, this is something that we have come to expect from Donald Trump. We know that his endorsement carries a lot of weight. He oftentimes gets people uh, over the line if, if they're struggling to, to get over. But yeah, in a primary, it is unique. Uh, but I think it's going to be really helpful for people. And look, we need some good uh, America first people, people that care about this country, that love America uh, and that want to see the right things happen, representing people in Washington, D.C. You know, it's funny you mentioned the right things happening. So this is this is just came out the other day that Bernie Sanders, of all people, he took his shots at Trump, obviously, but he made a, an interesting statement that he's really uncomfortable with uh, Trump being kicked off social media, specifically Twitter. And he was, I mean, he went nuts over this. Check this out. This is a bad news guy. But if you're asking me, do I feel particularly comfortable that the president, the then president of the United States, could not express his views on Twitter? I don't feel comfortable about that. Do you want the internet to be used for authoritarian purposes and, and insurrection, if you like? No, you don't. So how you balance that, I don't know, but it is an issue that we have got to be thinking about because if anybody who thinks, <laughs> you know, yesterday it was Donald Trump who was banned and tomorrow it could be somebody else who has a different, very different point of view. So I don't like giving that much power to a handful of high tech people. Palitarian communist Bernie Sanders says, I don't really want people to have that much control over stuff. What do you make of that? Yeah, well, it's one of the few things that I agree with uh, Bernie Sanders on here. I mean, he's exactly right. Whenever these people um, and, you know, they, they shield themselves behind the idea that these are, are private companies and that they don't have to follow the same rules as, as other outlets. They absolutely should. Our, our First Amendment rights to freedom of speech should be upheld across the board, period. And that that's that should be just the bottom line here. But when you have people who have the ability to censor and shut down the president of the United States, that is really scary. What he said there is 100% accurate. You might not like Donald Trump, but if it's Donald Trump today, it could be your guy or your girl tomorrow. It could be you tomorrow. So think about how scary that is whenever the power, that these, these people are so powerful that they could shut down the president of the United States. Now, I'm going to give you some perspective here. They shut down the president of the United States because they are the actual government. And sooner or later, you're going to realize that. 
because in no universe can a social media company just shut down the president. What I'm trying to tell you is, and you're seeing it more clearly now, and I want you to understand this. President Trump isn't exposing anything. There's no uh, media outlet that's exposing anything. You're able to see it. The veil is dropping. All of these shenanigans have been happening for years. And if you see things in retrospect, you realize it. Like yesterday, we were watching movie, um, An Angel for May, right? And in that movie, we saw that in England, they were shipping children off away from parents. We saw that they were being bombed, but they were bombing farms, random places, not London or anything, even though it's supposedly war, which makes you think, damn, Did they do that to their own people so that they can move the children up north where they lost their parents? I'm just saying. I mean, that's something that if someone told you now, you'd be like, yep, totally believe it. I'm trying to explain to you that this isn't about the news. This is about you being able to see it. You're able to see things clearer now. Ten years ago, if a ship was stuck in the Suez Canal and they told you the wind blew, you'd probably eat it for lunch and be like, yep, that's so true. Now you're like, stop. It drew a penis shape. Now you're actually looking for things. You're digging for things. and You're like, stop, stop, stop. If the media told you Matt Gates was guilty, you'd be like, yep, totally done, finished. General Flynn guilty, totally, yep, yep, finished. This person guilty, totally, yep, yep, finished. Now you're starting to see. That's what's happening. You're starting to see that the serpents are among us. Now, that dovetails my next video clip. Boy, 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 boy. I mean, Chris, stop. He's going to make me fall in love with him, like uh, per se, right? Because I couldn't believe that he actually put this out. Great job. Now, Take a listen. He actually calls it, the serpents are among us. These days would be coming. The days when goodness and light would be condemned and darkness celebrated. The serpents among us. That's the examination we provide in tonight's preamble. In the gospel, according to Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and 16, we read, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, we read this. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. The wolves who call evil good are the Democrat socialists who rule Washington, D.C. with their iron fists. In less than two months, these people have unleashed pain and suffering on Americans and foreign nationals alike, Americans are forced to pay for rampant and uncontrolled illegal immigration. We are forced to endure a national security crisis, a public health crisis, and a humanitarian crisis on our southern border. Our political enemies call this good government. In one location, 4,700 illegal aliens are crammed into a facility designed to hold only 250 people. And liberals say this is how they show they care. In Texas, law enforcement rescued a six-month-old baby who a ruthless human trafficker threw into the Rio Grande River 
after attacking the baby's mother. Socialists call this a challenge. And in New Mexico, cold and heartless coyotes drop a three-year-old and a five-year-old over a 14-foot fence and then run, leaving them alone in the desert. And Joe Biden and his leftists call this compassion. Biden's spokesmouth was asked what the administration was doing to stop this. See if you all hear an answer. There is. Okay, that's the new term we're using for Chucky, spokesmouth. I love it. I absolutely love it. Now let's see what Chucky has to say. Video of a three-year-old and a five-year-old being thrown over the wall in New Mexico. Beefing up border security. I, well, there are, there's video now of a three-year-old and a five-year-old. I've, I've seen the video, and I think any of us who saw the video um, were incredibly alarmed by uh, the steps of smugglers, ones that we have been quite familiar with, that we've spoken out about our concerns about. As Secretary Mayorkas said, the inhumane way smugglers abuse children while profiting off parents' desperation is criminal and morally reprehensible. President certainly agrees with that. And these kids, I believe, were rescued from by, uh, by um, individuals who are working at the border. Yes, 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 yes. America knows that your policies have led to this barbaric disgrace. But the question was, what are you doing to stop it? And are you concerned more about the kids' safety or are you concerned about kids getting in? Or tell me more about your concern here. Kids' safety is, as you just mentioned, the main concern. Well, of course it is, which is why I'm often surprised by some of the line of questioning here. But uh, I will say that um, our concern and our focus is on sending a clear message to smuggler to the region that uh, this is not the time to come. You should not send your kids on this treacherous journey that these smugglers are uh, preying on vulnerabilities in these communities. There's a lot of issues and steps we need to take to address root causes. Mm. So nothing. Biden and his socialists will do nothing but send a message two months after the surge began. Don't come. You all got that? Evil calling itself good. Here's one of the more infamous godless leftists in Washington, D.C., Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, trying to blame Americans for the misery being caused all over the globe by people who think just like her. We should be owning the fact that U.S. foreign policy has contributed to the destabilization of these regions and of the very countries that are now mired in a lot of violence that these families and these children are fleeing. That is simply a lie. The reason these families are fleeing is because left-wing collectivism has gripped many of these nations. With a, with a socialist takeover of any country comes destabilization, corruption, and violence. We've seen it right here in the United States, where violence in Democrat socialist cities has become the norm, where the socialists get to violate law with impunity, like Joe Biden's son, for example, aside from the laptop, he's suspected of giving false information on an ATF background check form. For normal people, the punishment for false answers on that form includes fines up to $250,000 and or 10 years in jail. But for well-connected and corrupt Democrat socialists, well, nothing. AOC blames the United States, a force for good, while she holds her evil ideology blameless. AOC has a suggestion for those 
who come to the United States illegally and abuse our asylum system. She has a prescription for punishment for we Americans who insist that Americans don't jail children with their law-breaking parents. And we cannot dust that under the rug. And by the way, those families are owed reparations, period. Reparations, she says, to reward those who broke and abused our laws and to punish those who are trying to do the right thing. What about the effort in some parts of our nation to ensure that the American standard of one eligible citizen to one vote is lived up to? Here is the Biden administration calling good evil. My question is, is the tone going to change out of the White House? Or, uh... The tone for a bill that limits voting access and makes it more difficult for people to engage in voting in Georgia? No, that's actually not what the, uh, the governor of Georgia has said. Well, so take this to heart. They want to limit the ability for people to have to provide identification to vote, but they have no problem with forcing you to get an ID that requires you to put something in your body to enjoy the freedoms this nation is supposed to provide you. That's perspective. I think that is not based in fact what the governor of Georgia has said. So no, our tone is not changing. We are not big fans of the alleged Republican governor of Georgia, but on this Good Friday, we can assure you, uh, everybody out there, that Jen Psaki just lied about Governor Kemp. It's not us saying so. It's the left-leaning Washington Post. The Post fact-checkers slapped Joe Biden's talking points about the Georgia law with four Pinocchios, its worst rating. Biden, whose White House has called the legislation Jim Crow in the 21st century, has repeatedly insinuated that the law limits voting opportunities. But the law makes no change to Georgia's Election Day voting hours, which run from 7 o'clock in the morning until 7 o'clock in the evening. Experts told The Post that the net effect was to expand the opportunities to vote for most Georgians, not limit them. MIT election expert Charles Stewart III found that Georgia's new law actually expanded voting hours, especially in rural counties. As for early voting, the law specifically mentions that voting sites are required to open beginning at 9 o'clock in the morning and ending at 5 o'clock in the evening. Biden's characterization was off base, as the Post noted, quote, any listeners might assume he was talking about voting on election day, not early voting. People who have a belief in God are threats to socialists. One reason that we're a threat is that we conduct our lives knowing that God is always with us, always watching. We have a prompting of the conscience. Liberals who are mired in the trappings of this world have no conscience. That's why they lie with such ease, why they're perfectly comfortable trying to turn the ideals of right and wrong upside down. As Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That may have been true for the brutal Roman soldiers and the Pharisees, but today's socialists, they have no excuse. They know exactly what they're doing. All we can do is pray that God will soften their hardened hearts, turn them back to the light. Wow, right? Wow, wow, Chris, wow. Oh my gosh, that was glorious. But to be honest with you, I think that a lot of people don't know what they do. I mean, at first instance, I see them with hate and detest you know, people that I see that go uh, to church who Bible thump, who push, and they're like, this and put your mask on, get the vaccine. And it's like, oh my gosh, I have this immediate hate. And then I'm like, oh, I feel horrible because 
They don't know what they're doing. They really don't. They're that far gone. And it's not, oh, I, you know, I struggle with that so much. I struggle with it so much because the people of tomorrow will look back on the people of today and hate them. They will hate them. If they had the opportunity, they would come back and slay each and every one of them. And, uh, you know, no one would ever think that people would be so blind to actual truth. But again, remember these past four years, the mainstream media angered people so much that they did their homework. There was a psyop upon a psyop upon a psyop. Good, bad, good, bad, spy versus spy. It was so insane. It was the wrong way to do it. Patrick Berge was right. Don't tell him I said it. He was always right. The only psyop you need is the damn truth. And then everything is so clear. And this is why now no one is believing anything. Even the left isn't believing anything. Even the left is ashamed that they voted for Biden. And they know that they cheated. So they hate that even more. And they're like, damn, Trump was right. Oh my gosh, this is terrible. That is all they're thinking. And the thing is, we had Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez standing at the border crying and posing for pictures, yet she wasn't at the border for this. This is something Ted Cruz posted on his Twitter. Take a listen and a watch for those of you watching. So uh, the reason we're driving down this road right now is that we're getting closer to the river, right? The parents are paying the smugglers to have their children smuggled. Thus, the cartels will smuggle the children up to the riverbanks. They'll walk up the riverbanks and they'll come into Border Patrol custody. After they come into Border Patrol custody, we'll give them to HHS, Health and Human Services. Health and Human Services will now contact the parents that originally paid to have the children smuggled, and HHS will tell the parents, here are your kids. So essentially, we facilitated the smuggling of these children. We completed that smuggling cycle. Yep, we're the last mile delivery. So last week, uh, these are the two unaccompanied children that I ran into, eight-year-olds and five-year-olds by themselves, right in this road. So here we go. Uh-huh. Walking. Here we go. These guys are having a field day. They're making $14 million a day in human trafficking and making probably multiple times that in illicit drugs. The river is right to our right side, to our right-hand side. Um, and I think what they wanted to do was to see if we would encounter other groups walking along this, along this route. Well, we're down along the river, Rio Grande, and there are groups coming across the border we just saw under the bridge where they actually detained them uh, but we've seen groups come up the road here they've crossed the river and they're coming into the country it's a very dangerous trip a lot of these these particularly children are coming from other countries being exploited by traffickers and uh, just a really tragic situation which uh, cries out for a solution those are the signs that the children that come by themselves have to follow or the family unit. It's horrible. It's horrible. 
I just can't imagine putting a child on this journey. I just can't imagine. It's horrible. I saw a two-year-old last night being held by a complete stranger. Brought over by a stranger. This is a uh, route that people take to come to turn themselves in. This path is marked so that people will know where to go uh, to to find... uh, a detention facility. They're not trying to avoid detection. They're trying to get caught. There's a loophole in our law that incentivizes people to bring six-year-old children with them because the Biden administration has changed the law. So if you got a six-year-old, you can't be deported. There are literally signs on the ground uh, pointing these migrants in the direction to the Border Patrol agents because they're not running away from the Border Patrol. They're running to the Border Patrol because they know that Joe Biden's policies enable them to stay in this country, even when they have no legal right to stay in this country, that we may be facing very soon 250,000 migrants crossing our border every month. Right. So so if we can get as many people down as we can, so we've got a bunch of smugglers that are talking to us right now. So there was another light right, right here, not smugglers that were bringing down the Hey, so, so real quick, real quick, this is... You hear them? Those are the smugglers. They're ready to bring those people over. Do they really tell you, hey, hey, we're coming? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because they know what's going to happen. We're going to take away. They'll, they'll sit here and make fun of us. They'll laugh at us. Well, I don't blame them. Yeah. So the smugglers are on the other side. They're waving flashlights and they're talking. We can hear them. No, but you can see the flashlight here. And we can hear them talking. Matter of fact, we could even yell back and forth at them. They're saying, viva Biden. We're, uh, we're on the edge of the Rio Grande. Right across is Mexico. The lights you see there are smugglers bringing in uh, families and children. Uh, They know the law. They know the change in in President Biden's policies. They know that if the child is six years old or or younger, they will be released into the United States. And you're not going to stop this as long as we practice catch and release. What we're hearing over there at Corner Border Patrol experts, those are cartel members who are actually shouting. So they're getting ready to smuggle some more folks across. They are right there. And uh, they can see the flashlights over there. But the voices we're hearing are likely cartel members here. They're getting paid thousands of dollars per person to bring across the Rio Grande. We're on the trails that the illegals will come up. And uh, just, I passed probably about 20 yards back there a yellow arrow. They literally have stopped building the wall. Instead, now are putting arrows down to direct where the illegals go so they can be apprehended and processed. It's absolutely crazy. You can read about this. You can see it on the news, but being on the ground here, seeing it, seeing the people, talking to the people, talking to our heroic border patrol agents, uh, that's the way you learn. So, Mr. President, Madam Vice President, you need to get down here. This has been truly extraordinary. It's midnight. We're on the banks of the Rio Grande. And across the river, we can... Wait a minute. I thought I heard him say something. Let's hear that again. Here we go. Listen carefully to what he says. And it's seeing the people talking to the people, talking to our heroic border patrol agents uh that's the way you learn so mr president madam vice president you need to get down here this has been truly extraordinary it's midnight we're on the banks of the rio grande 
And across the river, we can hear the sounds of cartel members taunting us, yelling at us. They're exploiting vulnerable women and, and children. They are smuggling drugs into this country. This system is inhumane. It's dangerous. We need to figure out how to address this, and we need to do it now. Just a really tragic situation. A great reminder that we've got a broken immigration policy and that the changes that have been made by the Biden administration are contributing mightily to a lot of the challenges that these Border Patrol personnel are facing. Control of the border is the federal government's responsibility, and local landowners, business owners, and others basically are uh, stuck with the policies passed in Washington, D.C. And right now, what they're telling us is those policies are not working. They're being exploited by the human smugglers who make a lot of money by the head of people they make that make their way into the country. It's a humanitarian crisis. And frankly, this all could have been avoided. Okay, the fact that I saw Hove in there, it's just ridiculous. I mean, he just needs to go away. Him and his porn stash. So what we see is a crisis that has been going on and on and on for a very, very long time. These people have no remorse. They feel that what they're doing is okay. They feel that it's, um, it's fine. It's totally fine. I mean, they did this on purpose. They know what they did. And this is going to have an, a very long-lasting impact. You do understand that's about a million people roughly every three months coming in. They have them packed like sardines, no social distancing, but they have masks in little boxes on the floor. It's disgusting. And they're doing it for what? Votes? Boy, things are going to change. Things are going to change, and they're changing radically and very fast. It is a war of good versus evil. I'm going to showcase to you why, um, why Russia. I don't think a lot of people know why Russia is actually in the war in Syria. And I wanted to talk about that. But in the meantime, I wanted to talk about Roe versus Wade, this new film that's coming out that speaks of truths that happened during it. Now, for the past couple of years, I've been telling you that Roe versus Wade is going to be coming into focus with this infanticide. Oh, boy, is it coming into focus. And the truth shall be heard because this is against good. This is pure evil evil, pure evil. This in our country's history will be released on several streaming platforms. The film Roe versus Wade is about two doctors who square off in a national battle that would have implications for decades. Take a listen. You will hear arguments in Roe against Wade. 
you may proceed. If you really want to know how abortion became legal in our country, I will tell you the true story. Dr. Mildred Jefferson, would you like to head up a Right to Life group that I'm starting? Dr. Bernard Nathanson's clinics are performing a thousand abortions per week. That's why I'm taking up the fight. To discuss, let's bring in writer, producer, and director, Nick Loeb. Nick, welcome to the show, and congratulations on the film. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me today. All right, well, I want to talk to you about this because this is one of the first uh, films on Roe versus Wade. Why was it so important for you um, to be such a big part of? Well, you know, I was really surprised. I mean, I've been in Hollywood for over 20 years, and I was really surprised that no one's actually made a movie on the most famous court case in American history. Um, and then thought, well, maybe that is it was a boring courtroom drama. And, and the more I researched it, I realized, you know, with all the lies and the manipulation, it was almost like an Oliver Stone JFK movie. So I thought it was going to be entertaining. Um, you tell this story from the perspective of male and female. Why was that important to you to get right? Yeah, because, you know, I think the argument today is, you know, uh, a woman says it's her body, her choice. And so we wanted to incorporate at least both sides of perspective when we went to go make the movie. So um, I wrote and directed the film uh, with a female. But when we told the movie of Roe v. Wade, uh, it was told through the eyes of the protagonist, uh, Dr. Bernard Nathanson. And, you know, also we took two sides of the story. Dr. Bernard Nathanson was the biggest abortionist in American history, committing over 70,000 abortions. He then became pro-life. So we got to tell two sides of the story through one character, the pro-life and the pro-choice side. You know, you play that role in the movie. Uh, he changes his opinion, like you described. Is your goal for this film to change the minds of those who watch it? What do you want people to walk away with? You know, I want people to uh, see the truth and see what really happened in the court case on the way there. And I think at the end of the day, um, for people to truly understand uh, that life begins at conception and that there's a baby there. Um, and, and whether people walk away from that converted or, or they don't convert, as long as they understand and see that abortion is a difficult thing and not an easy choice. And it's not just removing tissues or, or a bunch of cells. It's actually killing the life of a, of a child. Mm. Uh, while you were researching for this film, was there anything that you learned that was surprising or shocking to you along the way? I mean, everything. I mean, I, I tell everybody Roe v. Wade is the court case that everybody has heard of, but nobody knows anything about. And so, I mean, starting off with Roe v. Wade had nothing to do with Jane Roe or Henry Wade. Uh, Jane Roe, who is, who is the plaintiff in the case, really was a woman who was found, manipulated, lied to. They signed her up and never spoke to her again. I mean, she didn't even find out about what happened in the court case uh, until, until she heard from the media. Her, her lawyer didn't even involve her. Um, the court case was heard twice. People don't know that. Once in 1971 and 1972. Um, in 72, with two new justices. Um, two of the justices had, had family members working for Planned Parenthood at the time when they were making the decisions. And, and, and it was a tremendous amount of, of uh, interesting things that happened in this film uh, that happened during history that nobody really knows about. It's so important to point this out, and I'm so glad that you made the film. You know, even this week, Texas Senate approved six anti-abortion bills, including a proposal that would outlaw procedures once a fetal heartbeat is detected, and that's usually around six to eight weeks. 
you know, so often we talk about abortion in stark terms that you're pro-life or you're pro-choice, you're one or the other. Um, do you feel like we're making this too much of a black and white issue sometimes um, that people are afraid to have the conversation about when life begins and talking about what science actually tells us? You're 100% right. And I, I think the challenge, especially from the pro-life side, is what we tend to do is we tend to vilify uh, the pro-choicers as baby killers, um, horrible people, the devil, evil. And the majority of them are not. The majority of them uh, really don't know what to do. Uh, they're really conflicted. Many don't really understand they're killing a child and they're just trying to do the right thing. Yes, you have your outliers who start groups like Shout Your Abortion or are very excited that you they tweet, oh, I can't wait to have my fourth or fifth abortion. But those are very few and far between. And so I made this movie for those people. I made it a, a fair and balanced movie. The really, it's not an over-the-top faith-based pro-life film. And we talk about the issues from both sides, really so people can have an open heart and an open mind to see what happened so they can walk away. Either they convert or at least they have an understanding at the end of the day that there's a child there. And and so that's important when they walk away and understand when they make the decision to have an abortion, it's a very difficult, challenging one. It's almost uh, along the same lines of women who have to get a sonogram before an abortion. I mean, we see the statistics today, 80% of women today who have to get a sonogram change their mind. And if we can just do that and save our, change lives and save save babies, I think we, we've done our job. Mm. Well, Dick, thanks so much. I hope people go and watch this film, Roe versus Wade. Thanks for producing it and hope to have it back soon. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. So, hey, I'm Rob Finnerty. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this, so I just wanted to say her body language showed guilt. Don't know what that was about. So I want to show you before we get into J-O-B, John Brennan in the next half, I wanted to show you um, why, why Syria is so important. But first, but first, I'm going to show you how um, Putin is not everything they tell you he is. In fact, did you know that um, Putin in 2016 um, went to one of the most holiest places of Christianity? And why is that the holiest place? Well, it's Mount Athos in Greece. It is uh, um, where monks are. They actually have a piece of the true cross of Christ there. All they do is pray. And he went there um, and he also met with the Patriarch Krill there too. And um, I'm, I'm not uh, playing any audio at the moment because it's pretty much silent. But for those of you watching, you can see him arriving with a boat. You have to get a certificate from the government to actually go there. Um, and only males are allowed. Um, no female, only males are allowed. Um, it was actually the last trip my father made before he passed away. Uh, that's a picture I have of him. He was so happy while he was on the boat. He was wearing um, my PT shirt <laughs> uh, from the Navy and he was um, on the boat heading to Mount Athos. Um, people go there as a pilgrimage, men do. Uh, and it's a quite spiritual experience. Uh, for many, uh, more so because they get to venerate uh, the uh, actual cross that Jesus was crucified on, which is 
quite fascinating, right? Now, one thing a lot of people don't know is that Putin can speak more than just Russian. He pretends he doesn't. And I just wanted to put this out. And also how he believes that there are no coincidences. I'll, I'll show you that too. In this clip here, um, they reported how he corrected an interpreter speaking German. Yes, German. He's done it in English and he's also done it in French. A question and answer session at a journalist forum in the Russian city of St. Petersburg saw President Putin stepping into the shoes of an interpreter. After a question from the audience over Russian national values, Vladimir Putin jumped in to translate the speech of a former German MP. Herr Präsident, da bin ich aber gründlich missverstanden worden. Ich habe schon gesagt, dass wir... Меня, меня неправильно поняли, говорит наш гость. Да-да, пожалуйста, пожалуйста. Продолжайте, пожалуйста. Bitte schön. Sprechen Sie bitte weiter. Ich habe mich gewundert, dass die russischen Vertreter davon gesprochen haben, dass es keine nationalen Werte gibt. Я очень был удивлен, что представитель России говорит о том, что у нас нет национальных ценностей. Und ich habe aus meiner Sicht gesagt, wenn ich als Ausländer auf Russland blicke, dann stelle ich sehr wohl fest, was für Russland spricht. Das ist die Beachtung des Völkerrechts. Das ist die Beachtung des Friedens. Sie stehen... So he is being questioned in German and answering in Russian. Multi-talented Putin right there, right? So he speaks more languages than he knows. And here's a story. I'm going to have to um, play it on. I'm going to play it on mute because it's in Russian. So that way I can read it out for those that um, are going to be listening to this as a podcast. So it shows Putin... And he says, some years ago, I asked the patriarch how he came to the church. And he told me that his father was a priest. When I was baptized, it was at the end of the year 1952. My mother told me that she did not tell my father he was a member of the Communist Party. That was a serious secret back then. By the way, guys, you weren't allowed to have religion back then. I was ba baptized in Leningrad, today's Petersburg, in the Transfigurations Cathedral. A priest who served there suggested I take the name Michael because it was the feast of the Archangel Michael and because that was the priest's name. My mother apologized and asked if I could take the name of my father's father. The priest was nice and even showed her the icon of St. Vladimir. Anyway, some years ago when I asked the patriarch how he came to church, he said his father was a priest. I asked, where did he serve? He said in Leningrad. I asked when. He said in the 50s. I asked in what church? Patriarch said in Transfigurations Cathedral. I asked, what was the name of your father? He said, Michael. I asked the patriarch, at the time, was there any other Michael that served there? He said, no, my father was the only Michael. I told the patriarch, your father baptized me. How cool, huh? There's more. Now we're going to uncover a little bit more on, on why um, he was so, um, as you could see, churches were being burned. For those of you watching, 
Churches were being burned. Icons were being burned. During the communist era, you were not allowed to have religion. You are not allowed to pray. Christianity and all Christians were being persecuted. So Putin's mom baptizing him was a big deal. Um, It was against the law. So here is uh, Putin uh, at the at Mount Athos. I'm just going to show you him going to the church. Here he is, the church part. So he enters the church um, to participate um, after confession, um, comes into the church uh, to venerate the true cross. And this is in uh, 2016, where he was offered to venerate the cross that Christ was crucified on. Now, this one actually has audio, and believe it or not, it was actually done by Weibo. It's going to knock your socks off. This is pretty interesting because you're going to understand why Syria is so important. Well, sort of. Weibo didn't put all the details, but at least some of them are there. In this video from November 2017, Russian President Vladimir Putin is visiting Syria to inspect Russian troops on the ground. As Syrian President Bashar al-Assad rushes to catch up with him, Assad is held back so that Putin can walk on alone. To many, this moment sent a clear message that Russia was in charge in Syria's civil war. In 2015, Russia waded into Syria's brutal conflict and single-handedly turned the tide in Assad's favor. Since then, Russia has been present at almost every important juncture in the war, from distributing aid to residents to bombing areas held by militants. But Russia's interest in Syria extends beyond its backing of Assad. Its interest is also deeply rooted in Russia's efforts to redevelop the Orthodox Church, a key unifier at home and central to Putin's grip on power. In essence, Russia has a religious interest in Syria. To understand, we have to go back when Assad's father, Hafez al-Assad, was president. In 1957, the elder Assad trained in the Soviet Union, where he learned Russian and how to fly fighter jets. Until his death in 2000, he met with leaders in the Soviet Union and later in Russia. Russia didn't lose the Soviet-era ties after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, but it certainly lost its clout. What we see now under Bashar al-Assad and Putin is a reinvention of that close relationship between the Syrians and the Soviets. On the global stage, Russia is aggressively pursuing its message that it is the savior of the Christian world. Assad, who belongs to a minority Muslim sect, seems to agree. Shortly after Russia entered the Syrian war, Assad said Putin was the only defender of Christian civilization one can rely on. The Christian holy lands, of course, include Syria. There are two cities in Syria significant to Russia's Christian history. First, Palmyra, a prominent city during the Roman Empire and home to some of Christianity's oldest churches. Catherine the Great, the influential 18th century Russian leader, often compared herself to Zenobia, the legendary 3rd century queen of Palmyra. She also compared her court in St. Petersburg, then the capital of Russia, to the court of Palmyra. Today, St. Petersburg is still widely known as the Palmyra of the North. 
a Russian orchestra performed in Palmyra in May 2016. Many saw it as effective propaganda, portraying Russia as a global arbiter of culture. Second, the city of Malula, one of the only places in the world that speaks Aramaic, the language of Jesus. St. Thecla's Monastery, an ancient church in Malula destroyed by the Islamic State, has been recently rebuilt by a Russian government-linked veterans charity. Members of the charity have visited Malula regularly. Victory in Syria is part of Russia's plan to be seen as a serious power broker all over the world. Syria is its entrance into the Middle East, but it's also a key part of Russia's rise and prominence. When Russia first got involved in the war, there was little support among Russians for what looked like a costly and messy conflict. It was all too reminiscent of the Soviet Union's disastrous war in Afghanistan in the 1980s. But today, the Syrian war has arguably become part of the cultural makeup of Russia. It has been, without question, already a Russian victory. So, I'm sure none of you knew about Marula speaking Aramaic and what the real truth is. Well, you have to remember back to the time of the seven letters sent out to the seven nation armies. And that's quite important. We can delve into that another time. So we're going to go off to a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk spooky stuff. Spooky stuff is in intelligence and John Brennan and what he had to say. See y'all in just a bit. Awesome rendition or what? I think it was. So right now we're going to talk about John Brennan um, and an interview that he gave most recently. And, you know, when I watch some of it, I haven't watched all of it. I watched some of it. Because I was going to watch it tonight to talk about it tomorrow, but I thought, why not watch it with you? A lot of us feel sorry for bullies. You know, what, what in fact are bullies? They induce shame. They humiliate others by recognizing what the other person uh, is insecure about and they attack them. And they're usually projections of their own shame, uh, the fact that they feel inadequate um, in order to make you vulnerable, right? Now, feeling sorry for bullies makes you very um, ill-equipped to handle them and yourself with them. If you give a sympathetic response, it assumes that the bully is already aware of a negative self-perception. I want you to think of bullies like a scared animal who, instead of experiencing fear in early life, 
um, and accepting it and meeting it or confronting it, they aggressively attack instead. Now, many people will say compassion can be, even Jordan Peterson says that compassion can be your downfall. It's safe to feel compassion when you're in a controlled environment, right? And that's true because when I was slipped, whatever I was slipped and I was being questioned, I actually hallucinated that I saw some people in front of me. And even though I do not fear them per se, and I have compassion for their position and what they are doing because they do not know. They believe that they are doing something good. They believe that the path that they have taken and the choices that they have made are good when in fact they have condemned themselves for eternity. And that makes me very sad, especially when I'd see these little glimpses of humanity. It sounds so it gets me really, really worked up because there's so many times of this humanity, but then they had the ability to disconnect and, and, and treat humans like commodities, which I could not fathom. I, I could not fathom it at all. And I would say this is because they're legit lonely. Maybe it could have been abuse of alcohol, you know, like for example, John Brennan, has gotten hip surgeries. He went through cancer, you know, but it makes no sense as to why they think the way they do. And I thought, you know, it's a, it's like a virtue, a virtue thing that makes zero sense. Like a, like the let's virtue signaling thing. And I found this great audio clip. Um, Oh, wrong one. Give me a second. I found a really, really good audio clip. Let me see. Go back. There it is. And I found it astounding how the left's mask of virtue uh, was explained. And I, and I wanted to share that with you today. Because, you know, it really gets me emotional and upset when I see people that I've spent a lot of my time with to be just so lacking remorse. There it is. I don't understand how people can lack remorse and believe that they are in essence compassionate or doing good. It, it's the most bizarre conflicting feeling. And this is why They will stop at nothing. And if it means that they have to kill you, so be it. Take a listen to this. Orwell said he was criticizing British socialists, even though he was a socialist himself. He said, well, typical British middle-class socialist doesn't like the poor. They just hate the rich. They actually have sympathy for the working class. Are they really trying to put their, their needs forward? Or do they just hate the successful, mm-hmm. depending on how that's divided up? And I thought, well, how do you make a judgment like that? And I had the, this personal experience. But then I thought, well, that's easy with Marxism. It's like you just look at all the murders. And you, then you know whether that was a movement that was genuinely motivated by empathy. Right. And a lot of people die in all of this leftist. Yeah. A lo- a lo- 
Yeah, yeah like a, an unbelievable number, and yeah. and not just members of the oppressor class, let's say, mm-hmm. like everyone. <laughs> and it, yeah. it happens over and over, you know, and it's really worth thinking about because, well, when you might know, think, well, is that somehow embedded in the Marxist doctrine? Is it an inevitable consequence of the unfolding of these ideas? And someone like Ayn Rand, for example, would say definitely, and Solzhenitsyn made that case too in the Gulag Archipelago, but it's not self-evident. But I think there's a level under which, underneath the ideas that you could go and say, well, what's motivating this? Is it actually like saintly compassion for the downtrodden? Or is it resentment about the fact that life is unfair and tragic, which it definitely is. is. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, by their fruits, ye shall know them. That's the answer to that question. It's like, well, if, if 30, 40 million people die in the aftermath of the revolution, and a tremendous number of them are ordinary people, and that happens repeatedly. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, well, I guess it's, it must be resentment and hatred. Because, <laughs> like, how else do you account for all of that? The proof is in the pudding, so to speak. Well, uh, if you know, and if you're not willing to accept that sort of thing as proof, you got to also ask, like, well, okay, what would you allow to falsify your theory? Like, how many corpses have to stack up before yeah. you think? And the oh, number, the number is pretty high already. So it's it's uncountable. It, yeah, you know, like we don't know. We don't know how many people died as a consequence of communist totalitarianism. It could be 50 million. It could be 150 million. Those are big error bars. Yeah. You know, like that's, that's a big, that's a big problem when you can't count in the tens of millions, when you can't get the damn estimate right. And it happened in multiple cultures, right? Because you might say, well, it was just specific to a time and place. It wasn't intrinsic to this radical doctrine. Yeah. Well, there's not that much that's the same about the Soviet Union and all of its countries, let's say, broad range of cultures Maoist China, Cambodia, you know, places in Africa as well. These aren't the same places. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, you drop that poisonous seed in there and it's like mayhem in no time flat. And nothing works. Like so so I'm going for the don't be thinking that you're so saintly just because you claim to stand for the oppressed. It's like examine your conscience and well that thing, that thing though, is a drug to people, right? I mean that you know, what we refer to as virtue signaling and all of that, but that, that feeling that you're always looking out for everyone else, you'll always sacrifice yourself for anyone else, you'll always attack the, the privileged and supposed people above you. It really, there's something in that that, uh, that has like an addictive quality. Well, right? the question is, what's the drug? All right, so let me, let me, let me state something. Uh, there's a difference between supporting those that are being attacked, those that are uh, in poverty, those that are hungry, those that are cold, those that are wet out on the streets, that may not have a meal tomorrow, that may not have a roof over their head. You can have compassion and you can support them without wishing harm and attacking those that are not in poverty, right? Those that do have a home, those that do have food. You can do that. You don't have to attack those that are successful to make yourself righteous. See, that is a common misnomer. I think, you know, so many people have connected the, if you attack the rich, you're helping the poor. That's not really the case. There are a lot of things that make us sad. 
I mean, think of it right now. If there's tens of thousands of children in another time zone or maybe in your own, maybe right down the street from you that have bare cupboards. You don't know their name. You don't know their face, but I'm sure you can feel that kind of pain. There are people out on the street that willingly are out on the street, right? A lot of them drink themselves to death, take drugs, but others that just had that one thing happen to them that put them on the street. And boy, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I have been that close to. Patrick Berkey has been broken to that point. See, compassion isn't making excuses. Compassion isn't agreeing or disagreeing with someone's situation. Compassion is understanding that right now at this very moment, there is a person releasing their last breath. There is a person somewhere taking their first. There is a person being beaten, a person being pet, a person having sex, a person eating food, a person on the toilet. They're everywhere. They're all doing something right at this moment. And if you put it down on a paper, it'll be a lot more evil happening than good right at this moment. And that is the perspective you should think of. So does that make you angry to hurt people that are in higher positions? Then why don't they hate Beyonce who won't even speak to common folk? Why don't they hate Cardi B that's telling your daughters that they should be flashing their vajayjay, right, to get that money and that handbag? I, I kid you not. I was um, at the store this morning after the dentist um, to go get a, uh, a bag, you know, like a, a little bag thing so Phoebe can put her stuff in at the gymnasium. And there was a woman talking with her friend and she was like, oh, nice bet. She's like, yep, you know what? He wants it. He better pay for it. That's what I asked him for. And I'm like, damn, you just gave it up for a $2,000 bag. I mean, it's a nice bag, but is this what we're teaching our children to demean themselves? <sighs> but yet they don't hate those people, right? They don't want to attack those people. They don't want to attack. What was it? That guy? Oh, I... <sighs> forget the guy that was like, let the people in from the Southern border, let them in. And then they started climbing over his, you know, protected fence. Uh, oh, it was the Antifa people. That's right. Let them protest. And then they came to his neighborhood and he started screaming, Hey, the police won't come and get rid of these Antifers. And it's like, you said that they're just protesting and they should just break stuff. Now they're coming to your yard and you don't want it. These are the people that they don't hate. Because for some reason, people think that their perception, their speech, their music, their whatever is more important than you or the guy that worked his ass off and has, you know, three stores across the state, uh, um, a third generation car dealership owner, right? He doesn't deserve his money. He's all money. No, he worked really hard. Trump, oh, he got a million dollar loan from his dad. Why not? He still made it billions. Why not? He's a hard worker. Why not? But you're okay with Beyonce? I'm Perspective is everything. This virtue signaling that is happening is 
insane. And it's not just on the leftist ideologies of how we should live our life and how we should talk, walk, and act. Dogs have more rights than humans right now. Dogs have more rights than humans. That's crazy. You know, the question, the drug might be, oh, I'm a good person, maybe. But like a more psychoanalytically minded person might say, no, that's not actually the drug. The drug is the hatred and the rationalization for the use of power and the, and the, and the wish for totalitarian control mm-hmm. and tyrannical rule. That the, that the mask, mask of virtue covers. So the virtue signaling, actually, that's, that's not what's really providing the big kick. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, I'm a good person. It's like, no, it's even better than this. It's like, I've got a place to direct my worst, my worst impulses. I don't even have to notice them myself because I've got this mask of virtue. And so I can let the, let's call them, you know, the demonic forces that make up part of the human psyche. I can let them have carte blanche and, and then also say that I'm virtuous. You know, I would yeah, say that's, that's, that's a power. powerful combination. Yeah, well, it looks like it's a powerful combination. I mean, if you if you look at the way people behave, it, historically speaking, it it looks. I mean, it's often that that great horrors are perpetrated by people who mask them in a utopian covering, right? Right. Well, nobody, nobody, comes out, nobody comes out and says, "Hey, well, I'm Satan himself." <laughs> you know, it's like I'm out here to do harm. Right. That isn't what people, but but somehow harm gets done. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things I really like about the American political system is that it's, it's not predicated on a utopian ideal. You know, the, the founders of the American system, of course, they were basically English, but, you know, the founders of the American system said, okay, well, you know, you can't trust people to do the right thing. It doesn't mean they're all bad, but mm-hmm. you, you can't assume that they're going to do the utopian thing. That isn't what people are like, and they tend to take care of themselves first. And maybe that's okay, and maybe it's not, but it has to be bounded. But given what we know about the um, imperfection of individuals and societies, let's try to build a system that no idiot can screw up too badly. Yeah, and I think that that's so essence. mature, man. It's so it's so psychologically informed and and so wise. Indeed, you know, I watched that whole interview, and Ruben looked really distracted. He wasn't even like into it. He like zoned out after a little part. So that's it. It's that they think that because they're allowed to be evil to their because of their cause that they're good people when in essence they're evil incarnate. Evil incarnate. They make it okay. Now, there's this evil guy here. I want to put a little clip of him first who sounds insane. This is a national security and press freedom uh, speech. I want you guys to listen to this insane guy first. It is so incredible what he says. But I'm also going to tell you things from in between the line too. Uh, Because, you know, John Brennan made his debut in this sad, sad, how many views has it had? 887 views. There we go. Worked for that. (laughs) They all look insane. They have like this look in their eye as if they know best. And like Jordan Peterson said, what the American uh, founders, um, did 
was create a system that's not utopic, but it had a lot of fail safes that they slowly took away, obviously, hence why we're in this position. And again, I'm going to say this once again, the veil has been thinning. It has been thinning for the past couple months now, and you can see right through everything. You can see the fakeness. You can see the fake stories. You can see the virtue signaling. You can see that this has been happening for years now. In retrospect, you're like, oh, my gosh, I was so dumb. How did I not see? And I'm the same. I guess I wasn't supposed to see. Because a lot of, you know, a lot of my actions from 2005 and onward were of awe, right? But in awe of his presence, I mean, I was just like stupefied. But I was in awe as to, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to be smart. How did I not see that? And I'm coming to terms only in the past couple of weeks that I was meant to not see. That way I had more drive. Ah, I want to say that because it makes me feel better. It could be true. But all these hints, all these years that I've been putting out information to various people within the government, um, news outlets that have ignored it, of course, starting with Dan Rather, um, were a way of me seeking redemption. And I think the redemption actually comes from within when you realize um, that everything, there's a time that we wake up. And that's when we realize that there's more. And just watching just a few bits and pieces of this, um, this interview, I can say I actually cried. I'm going to say it straight. I cried just from seeing John Brennan in that state because he's on, he's got one foot in the grave. He's condemned himself. And a lot of other people have too. This woman on your screen right now with the crazy eyes who thinks she's doing good is actually doing a lot of evil. And I want to say they don't know. I want to say it. Because I don't think they, I don't think anyone would be willingly sacrificing their eternity if they knew it was there and it was in their control. I, I believe in good. Here we go. Now, please join me in welcoming Ellen Nakashima of the Washington Post, former CIA director John Brennan, and the co-editor of National Security Leaks and Freedom of the Press, Professor Jeffrey Stone. Thank you so much, Allison. It's an honor and a delight to be here, and particularly to be here with Ellen Nakashima and John Brennan, um, two of people I most admire um, in this aspect of our, the challenges our society faces. Um, I will begin by giving a brief eight or nine minute uh, statement about um, what the underlying issues that we'll be talking about will be, and then uh, Ellen and John will uh, enter the discussion, and at the end, we'll have 15 minutes for questions from the audience. So this is Professor Stone. 
He's evil incarnate. I'm just going to put on the last minute and a half of what he says. Listen carefully. For most of the last 50 years, it's clear, though, that the circumstances that undergirded the Pentagon paper system have changed fundamentally in the last decade or so. One primary change concerns the introduction of the Internet and the digitization of information. The nature of government is to keep secrets and the exponential growth in both the felt need for secrecy, especially since 9-11, and the capacity to satisfy that need through digitization has been highly significant in dramatically magnifying the amount of information the government now classifies as top secret. Another primary change is that the risk of leaks has also dramatically increased. Since 9-11, the number of government employees and contractors with access to classified information has skyrocketed, and the ability of leakers to disclose unprecedented amounts of potentially damaging national security information has escalated beyond anything Daniel Ellsberg could have imagined half a century ago with his use of Xerox machine. Today, leakers like Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden have the digital capacity to disclose tens of thousands of times the amount of information the leakers could realistically have disclosed in the past. A third important change concerns the institution of the press. The Internet has significantly undermined the traditional business model of the traditional press, like the New York Times and the Washington Post, and opened the floodgates to an endless array of would-be publishers of all kinds on the Internet. While some of these websites adhere to the long-standing traditions of journalistic integrity and practice, many, like WikiLeaks, do not. Thus, whereas the Times and the Post were careful in trying response. Listen carefully to what he's saying. He's saying WikiLeaks, he's acknowledging that WikiLeaks is a journalist site. Error number one for them, because how are you going to try a journalist? Number two, he's saying that the Washington Post and the New York Times are careful and have integrity, yet they've done the most retractions ever for papers and publications in the past four years. Like, it's crazy. A few a month, they just blatantly lie, but they have integrity. Institutions. He's talking about cracking down on we are the news. Possibly not to disclose any information that would seriously harm the national interest, the existence of social media has trashed the notion that potential publishers of such information can be trusted to be responsible. In short, as a result of these changes over the past half century, the risks of both too much secrecy and too much disclosure are arguably very different from what they were in 1971. This new reality led me and Lee Bollinger, the president of Columbia University and a longtime colleague of mine, to put together our just published book, National Security, Leaks, and Freedom of the Press. Yeah, what a tool. Let's push our book. Now, this is Waypo. I don't want to talk about her. Let's go straight to John Brennan. Government should take steps to reduce overclassification. Society should ensure media literacy. We can talk more about that later. The media should reinforce norms of accuracy and fairness. I think I'll stop here and, and turn to John to ask you to share how you either experienced the Snowden leaks or any other 
of the major leaks that happened while you were at the CIA? So first off, let me just say he looks really thin. I think his cancer's back. Um, he's wearing makeup. Um, and his posture indicates that he's in pain. I recognize it because I've seen it before. It makes my heart break that I see him in this because he doesn't have to do this. He can come forward. He can confess. He can he can make it better for himself. I know. <laughs> but when you've, it's like one of those, uh, it, not abusive relationship because he didn't abuse me. He abused my talents and so did many others. But I actually do feel bad. I feel bad that, that, you know, he's got one foot in the grave and he's still singing the same song that's sending him there. Thanks, Thank Alan. I just want to remind the audience that um, you should use the chat function to ask questions. We will reserve the last 15 minutes of the program for questions. So please do that. We look forward to hearing from you. John? Well, thanks, Jeff and, and Ellen. Uh, thanks to the Chicago Humanities Festival. It's a great opportunity to speak to uh, people about, as Ellen said, a very, very important issue and this healthy tension between the need for openness um, as well as the need for our maintaining our national security. And a couple of comments up front. Uh, first of all, I want to make an admission. I am, I was in the national security uh, realm for 33 plus years, and I would say that uh, people consider me to be very much um, on the part of the spectrum that advocates for greater transparency of government information. That's a lie. And national security information. Uh, I was an advocate for that during my years at CIA and also when I served at the White House. Um, also, I, I think just pivoting off of Ellen's comments, I, I do think the Washington Post did a very good job at that time of handling what was an exceptionally sensitive um, matter in terms of all the materials that Edward Snowden had released to the Post. And uh, I just want to compliment Ellen and her teammates for the way that it was handled and uh, certainly the New York Times and others uh, also, I think, have handled some of these delicate situations with the appropriate consideration for national security, uh, as the Washington Post and, and the New York Times journalists, I'm sure, are very much interested in making sure that this country stays strong, safe, and secure, and that there is a need for national security information to be kept uh, secret. Wow, he's very sick. He's wearing a sweater and a shirt and he's in the house, and it's not that cold where he is. So he's very sick. Um, now, what he's referring to is the fact that uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post spearheaded how they were going to shape Edward Snowden's leaks to make him look good. Make him look good so they can bring him back and not allow him to stay out there and say more because he had access to more and they knew he had access and they didn't know what dummy access he may have because when he realized he was duped, right? He made sure to cover himself. Very well done. So very well done. So, but his leak wasn't because he leaked because he felt bad. He leaked because he knew that he was being set up. Now, you might say, well, his leaks help. No, it helped them even more. 
It helped them let the cat out of the bag without getting in trouble. You do understand what the Washington Post and the New York Times did was normalize that leak by saying, okay, yeah, we're doing it, but it's for your safety. He's a threat. He's this. He's that. He has a lot more. What he did was commit crimes in regards to against the state uh, by releasing other information to other nations that he shouldn't have. And what he should have done is pointed to the data centers globally. But on the other hand, up to 14 eyes are participating in that. So it's not much of a secret. The only people he could actually tell something that they didn't know was maybe the Congo or I don't know. That's it. Because almost everybody knows that everything is there. He simply, see, what he did was he saw he was getting caught. He was like, I'm going to tell everyone. And if they kill me for it, I'll be martyred for it. But they didn't kill him for it. They used him as cover so they could let the cat out of the bag and lull the people and say, yeah, okay, we did this, but we did it to protect you. We don't want another 9-11. Don't make us orchestrate another one. So they did COVID instead. But um I just wanted to point that out, that he's praising the New York Times and WAPO for helping shape the story. But um, looking at uh, sort of a, the larger issue, uh, over the years, I think there has been far too much classification of information in the U.S. government. Uh, I think it's partly sort of legacy practices that just over time, and especially given that the amount of information that is available now, as Jeff pointed out, is exponentially larger than it was back just even a decade ago because of all the different types of collection systems and capabilities and being able to maintain this information in, in various databases that are accessed uh, digitally, electronically. And so, uh, therefore, I think the, some of the um, previous protocols in terms of just by default things get into the classification bucket, I think that still prevails in many parts of, of the government. And it's something that I think needs to be reviewed. Um, secondly, I think there's a tremendous sense of, of uh, insularity within the intelligence community, understandably so. These are individuals who live in a secret world. They really want to do their best to protect these sensitive sources of methods from getting out, which could have devastating consequences, not just in terms of the various collection capabilities the United States has uh, around the globe to detect these, these threats and challenges to our national security, but also Exposure of sensitive information can reveal individuals uh, who the CIA or other parts of the intelligence community have worked with or recruited over the years. And exposure of that information can lead to these individuals being arrested, uh, incarcerated, and even executed. And so they... Okay, so <laughs> it's not going to work. So I just wanted to say um, methods are the most important thing. You can be made as a spy. You can have access to information. Like you said, it's all over and there's access and it's digitally out of control. That's right. That's why Tori can see everything. But methods are the most important thing. It doesn't matter if they find your server. It doesn't matter if they find what computer you used. It doesn't matter if they found you in the chair you sat on. What matters is how. Did you access you? I see the computer. I see the end. But how did you get in there? That's always the question. Or how did you collect that artifact? Or how did you know this? Or how did you see that? Well, there's a lot of things 
There's keyholes everywhere. Therefore, there really are life and death issues associated with a lot of this information. And that's why I think, again, some of the default practices and part of the intelligence community, and certainly within CIA, is to um, be overly cautious and to try to ensure that no information gets out that could have these types of uh, consequences. That said, um, as Ellen pointed out, I think there, there needs to be this, this healthy tension between the openness that I think the American people want and expect of their government um, as appropriate, but also the need for the intelligence professionals to do what they can to continue to protect their fellow citizens from harm. How are they going to protect us? Let's think about it for a second. How are they going to protect us? If there's transparency, right, what is it that they need to hide from us that would keep us safe? Keep it, would it be good to hide, I don't know, oh, you know, um, South Africa has a uh, certain software on some microchips of drones that everyone keeps flying. And those chips were made by Interpol. Well, they were actually sourced by Interpol. So that way they can collect information of you using those drones. Oh, Huawei, China was spying. Well, what if you knew that, I don't know, um, that maybe, for example, Verizon was working with Interpol and all your conversations are rerouted to South Africa to their new headquarters. So that way they can document voice recognition, your travel patterns and create um, algorithms. What? Uh, should they keep that a secret? Should they keep their partnerships with other nations a secret? Or maybe they shouldn't tell you about uh, things that are going on in the planet. Like maybe possibly, oh, there's a volcano under the water that's kind of brewing. You know, if that comes out, boy, we're screwed. Or yeah, you know, by the way, we can actually manipulate weather. Um, why can't you tell people, oh, by the way, this is real. Oh, by the way, this is real. Why can't you tell the people, what are you protecting them from? themselves. So you're better than them. So you're higher than thou. Are you not equal? Do you not see the same sun rise every morning and the same sun set? What makes you more important to have to hide secrets from the very people that pay your salary to protect them? Your protection should be enforcing the laws of our nation. Our global protection should be our military forces to be equipped and ready to be able to, to meet any threat. To have our space force equipped and ready to meet any threat. Other than that, there should be no secrets. Why are we spying on other nations? Why do we have to spy on other nations? Why? Because we want to be better than them. We are better than them. No offense, right? But in Italy, they've been around for thousands and thousands of years. Greece, thousands and thousands of years. China, thousands and thousands of years. Yet, for whatever reason, the United States of America, having been a melting pot of people, yes, started off with slavery, totally traditional for thousands and thousands of years, but we became super woke and realized that every human has the same right as every other human, right? So that went away, but we're a melting pot. Look at the advancements we made. Look at how quickly we can solve problems compared to other nations. So why, again, is it necessary to keep your people in the dark? What do you mean it's secret? We can't tell. If it's secret, then it's something that's probably not in the interest of the people. 
because the people should have the right to know. There should be no secrets. Oh, we negotiated with this country. Did you ask me if you can negotiate like that? What if I don't want to give Pakistan $10 million to help their transgender? Come on. This is not the way a nation is run. This is not what the forefathers foresaw. We're not going to tell the people about this, but we're just going to give a crap ton of money to Guatemala so they could build an art mural. The people want to know where their money's going. I'm giving it to the federal government and the state government. I want to see where it's used. What do you mean secrets? Now, having said that, the fact that they had secret budgets helped a lot. Helped a lot on mitigating what they were planning for so many years. That's a story for another time. And because of, I think, the evolution in technology and, as Jeff pointed out, the just the explosion in social media, the, the universe of actors uh, who actually could have access to information and then propagate it um, instantaneously has just multiplied so many times. And so therefore, I think the challenges today really are much more significant than they were years past. Is he talking if about me? <laughs> any unauthorized disclosure of classified information could wind up in the hands of the Washington Post, the New York Times, or or other mainstream media uh, entities, uh, I think uh, I certainly would be uh, more, much more comfortable because... Why would he be more comfortable if it was in the hands of the New York Times or the Washington Post? Because they're all assets there. They all work for the agency there. And they're all part of the one government, which are the corporations. Let's be straight, okay? I'm telling you the truth. There is no Biden administration. There is no Harris administration. Your Senate and Congress, they're all on freaking life support. The federal government is run by the questions, period. There is no government. There is no federal government. They run the show. The media companies, the social media companies, the consumer goods companies, the transport companies, even Major League Baseball. I mean, they have to chime into everything. Hence why I got a t-shirt that says, you know, MLB, hashtag MLB is racist because my ID is required. Someone had uh, sent me for my birthday two tickets to Cleveland Indians game. And so um, that's next weekend. And I got a T-shirt for that so I can post that with their hashtag and everything. So the bottom line is we do not have a federal government. We have a network of people that get taxpayer dollars and get paid and black budgets that are insane that help and assist these consumer companies because every single consumer company has people of the agency. If you have worked in any office, more than likely you've been tapped by the agency and you must be reporting every now and then. For those of you that are living in DC, I'm pretty sure you live in either New Jersey or Virginia or Maryland. You got to go across the river sometime. You got to report, right? Knock, knock. I'm here. Got nothing to report. Oh, by the way, I heard this. Right. So they tap you. They are everywhere. They are everywhere. And they're supporting the corporations because the corporations have the ability to be everywhere at once. I mean, what's not to like about Facebook? You heard of another hack. 500 million user emails. That wasn't a hack. That was a sale. And but we're going to call it a hack. Right. We're going to call it a hack rather than a sale. Throughout the course of my career. And in many instances, when I spoke to the editors, including Marty Barron at the Washington Post, when the Post 
happened upon information or received an unauthorized disclosure. And uh, the Post would reach out to the intelligence community uh, to try to have that discussion so that the Post could better understand what are the equities involved. And I really appreciated that back and forth. And in many instances, the Post would make adjustments. The Post and the New York Times had received so many tips from me. Actual evidence. Huh. In 2017, the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Breitbart, believe it or not, got for me a portion of the DNC server that had to do with elections. It's 2017. None of them published it. Maybe they didn't get it. I'm assuming that in Breitbart it was destroyed by the assets that the agency has in there. One of them actually plays Border border Patrol cover. He's a total agency asset. See, Brennan, you see how I do that? I'm going to reveal each and every one of the clowns because you're upset that they're being revealed. They're not going to die. They're going to get fired. And then they're going to walk the walk of shame. Because when you have people like penetrating movements and news agencies, when they're assets, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Yeah, so there is that guy that covers border stuff. He's a total asset, just so you know. Now, <laughs> having, having said that, none of them published anything, but all of them went back and asked questions. I know that. I know that for a fact, because I, I saw the communications. In terms of what it would put out in the publication. Um, they would be, sometimes they would challenge, sometimes they wouldn't agree. Uh, but they wanted to understand what the impact would be. Unfortunately, there are too many out there in that realm who have access to information that care not about the consequence on national security. Uh, they want to just make a splash. And See, that, I'm going to take that personally. No one's trying to make a splash, dude. Someone's trying to say, no, you don't know better. The people can think for themselves and they deserve the truth. The fact that all of you have been thinking that you've been voting all these years is ridiculous. He's just salty that in 2016 his plan didn't pan out and they couldn't adjust the algorithms. And that's where I think the real risk uh, is, is found in uh, having these individuals who <laughs> pretend or present themselves as, as journalists or members of the fourth estate and will use the protections uh, afforded to the fourth estate in order to uh, push information out that can be you know, devastating. And uh, I must say that uh, having been involved in intelligence and counterintelligence for many years, our global adversaries are certainly not opposed to using the guise of journalism, of the media, to try to find ways to uncover national security information. So, see, this is a problem. Foreign, you do it, John. You have assets everywhere, John. You found the little black book, John. That's the way it is. Him and Jim are the worst thing that ever happened to the intelligence community ever. It was like Jim knew it was wrong. He totally knew it was wrong, but he just did his job. How, how would he say it? We just got to keep it to the protocols. <laughs> that is exactly what they would say. Just keep it to the protocols. Keep it straight. It's so sad. 
Now we'll continue this conversation tomorrow, but I want you to know that 99% of your journalists are tapped assets of the agency. They put out narratives that they want you to hear. They're upset right now because they have no control and no power over anything. And John, yeah, well, I feel bad for Owen. I'm just watching him makes me sad. I can't even look at his face because I can see just how sick he is. And he's lost a lot of weight. But using the guise of journalism, they say that our foreign assets will try to exploit our national security. No, dude, it's using these private companies that you so trust, like Facebook and Google and Amazon, that they've now taken control. You fed the alligator hoping it would eat you last. And what they don't realize is, is digital mercenaries are the worst kind ever. And the struggle is real. Even the people that are fighting for your side are also standing by what Brennan says. They believe that they have the right to keep secrets. They believe that you're too dumb to know what to do. They believe that the media should control the flow of information to protect national security. What is it? What is it that you don't want them to know? The atrocities? Huh? The unnecessary wars? Huh? They already know half of it. Why not give them the whole story so that they know that you abused, you wasted and abused taxpayer dollars to execute agendas that were not in the favor, well, I guess for the nation in regards to power, they were in favor, but by no means do I believe that any American citizen would have approved any such actions. And, you know, I'm just saying, I would totally love to see General Flynn come out and talk about those UAVs back then and, you know, file an investigation memo, that's already out. We could talk about more if you want. I mean, I keep saying and saying, but I'm not protected by whistleblower laws at all. And there are things that I cannot repeat and I will not repeat. Because like you said, they end up in jail or executed. So there are things that I can't repeat. Those things that I say, I make sure that there's a source online so that way I can elaborate. But we should start talking about those UAVs right before Benghazi. We should start talking about Benghazi. I know that the people that needed to hear my involvement in the Benghazi thing and what I know from it heard exactly what I had to say. And I think it's time that the people know and that the people know that this has gotten way out of control. And the secrecy is not needed. You are not chosen to protect the people. The people can protect themselves. So I would love to see General Flynn come out and talk about those UAVs. You know, no one's going to fail you or hate you for following your commanding officer's orders ever. Redemption begins at any point, just like in the the movie that you saw being advertised about Roe versus Wade, 
the guy that had committed the most abortions ever decided to be pro-life. He had killed over 70,000 potential human beings, right? They would have been human beings of this society. They were human beings for a very short time that he pulled apart piece by piece. And he redeemed himself by coming clean and understanding. So it's very important that people understand, hey, if someone's done wrong and they come out and they say it, yeah, people will be upset. But how many of you have the cojones to come out and say, you know, this was wrong. I did it because I was following orders. I was completely wrong, but I was following orders. So can't be prosecuted for following orders. But why don't you put it out there and prosecute those that gave the orders? Prosecute those that sacrificed our own people for what? For what gain? Power? We don't have power there now. It was never set in stone. What are we, the crown where we go and infiltrate everything and just claim it as ours? What are we, squatters? We're the people of the United States of America that believe in the inalienable rights of human beings, that believe that we can work and, 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 and be around each other and coexist without uh, rank and color and, and religion. We don't care. We don't care if you have sex with men, women, or both. That's your business, not mine. We're past that point. There is no more room for this demagoguery, right? The whole virtue signaling. Asian lives matter. You know, I was watching this show with my daughter called Georgia and Ginny. And it's about a girl and a, and a mom. Mom's murdered a couple men that have been mean to her, still committed murder, right? But the daughter is half white, half black, and she's dating a boyfriend that's half white, half Taiwanese. So they had like oppression Olympic argument. And so it seems so weird because she was like, well, yeah, you Asians are stereotyped as geniuses and whatnot. Like she hated him for being half Asian, even though he felt completely secluded because no one in Taiwan would see him as a Taiwanese because he doesn't speak Chinese and, uh, you know, he looks more white. So there was an oppression argument there between two very oppressed individuals. One of them was driving a Porsche, right, and had a big house and was successful teenager, right? And then the other one was super oppressed too, uh, finally living in a home, having a mom that would actually commit murder on her behalf because one man tried to touch her kid. But so, you know, these people are so oppressed that they had to compare their oppression. It was so ridiculous to watch. It was so ridiculous to watch. These demagoguery ideas that doesn't belong here. Why are you in the past? Look forward. Look forward to how can you make your backyard safe? How can you make your backyard thrive? How can you make the people within your borders love to wake up every single day, to have work, to have a purpose? I mean, we're in a state right now, right? Where if we wanted to, the United States could indeed be paved with golden roads. That if you wake up and you say, you know, I really like, I have a passion. I can't stop working. You know, I was watching, um, <clears throat> I was reading actually on YouTube, Tom McDonald's um, like post about creating some video. Anyway, he said something that struck me. 
He said, I work every day on something that I like because I don't want to be where I was 10 years ago. And he found his passion and he decided to follow it, just like many others have. They find their passion and they follow it. They have something to come. You want to be a hairdresser? Be the best darn hairdresser there is. You like to fuss with hair? We should be able to be to, to allow our children to have their dreams come to reality. We are in that state. Our nation can do that, but they are not letting us do that. If you want to be a writer, you should be the best damn writer. And we shouldn't be glorifying positions of writing because you could be a great welder, a great carpenter, a great pipe fitter. You know, you could enjoy the whole, I like doing pipes and stuff. You know, we should be allowed to be able to, to, to see what we can contribute to society. Not what society tells us we should be contributing. Like when analyzing careers, right? It's like the dumbest, the simplest, most secure career. The bank is a teller, right? The bank teller job, part-time, you're in the system. You've been working for them. You go to college, you finish your degree, you move up in the bank, you sit there, you go into corporate, you go into loans and you're set. You've got your, you know, no, 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 no. If you like that kind of mundane round the clock, nine to five kind of thing, go do it. If you like adventure, then you can become a, well, I guess they used to be incredible waitresses and waiters, right? Our staff on airplanes were incredible. The service was impeccable. They would always look after customers. Now they look like the Gestapo, where they're just looking to find an excuse to kick people off of a flying bus. (laughs) You know, you can find your passion and follow it. But for some reason, society doesn't want you to. Because society is telling you where you need to fit. Society is telling you what you're supposed to do. Why? Because you're born with over $80,000 in debt. You're born with people like Beyonce and, you know, uh, (laughs) and Cardi B being praised. Rather than, you know, scientists and, and, and writers and legal minds and gosh, there's like so many people you could praise. Like why are kids watching CNN when they could be watching like the world uh, physics forum? I know it sounds really lame, right? (laughs) But those are the fun stuff. Why can't we praise things that are actually creating innovative technologies and innovative ideas that are bettering our lives, simplifying our lives to give us time to do things. It seems like the more we simplify life, the more we have no time. Computers are supposed to help make things easy, yet we have no time for anything, right? Uh, Transportation was supposed to make things easy so you don't have to walk three days to get to the other town, yet now we still have no time. It's as if we're constantly being consumed because I say it again. The corporations own you. You are no longer the consumer. You are the one being consumed. Nothing is free. If something is free, you are the commodity. That's key. So we'll talk about intelligence because I have some other stuff that I wanted to bring up for tomorrow, but I wanted to introduce this. It breaks my heart to see him so sick. It really does. He still has time. Well, not that much, but he still has time to 
ask for forgiveness and change things. I mean, the more and more we get closer to that seven nation army coming into focus. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Same time, same place. God bless everyone. Mm -hmm.